again for being here. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, thank you especially for coming out, braving the cold and the snow. We very much appreciate it. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat back around you. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that, take that. That's our gift to you. We like giving Bibles away. If you know someone who needs a Bible, uh, give, take it, give it to them. Um, so like I said, we love giving Bibles away. So we're going to be in Mark 8 this morning. As you turn in there, I'd like to thank uh, our prayer team. Our prayer team um, serves this service. Uh, everything we do here, we try and bake and cover in prayer uh, because that's the only way God's going to, that's the only way we're, anything's going to happen uh, is if we invite God to, to move. We give God space uh, to move here. And so we want to um, do what God has given us the ability to do, go boldly before him, uh, to confess, to give our thanksgiving, to bring our supplications, to bring everything to him. And so uh, our prayer team um, is here every Sunday to pray with us and for us, to pray for whatever things we have going on in our lives. We get to go with uh, a brother or sister to God and help um, voice those things, voice those things to God. And so uh, I invite you every, you know, at, later on in the service when we're singing, um, there's going to be people up here to my right and left who will pray with you and pray for you. Uh, if you want prayer for any reason, come and take advantage of getting the chance to pray with them. Even if you don't want to tell that person what it is you want them to pray for, just say, I need some prayer. I just need something. Um, they, they will happily pray with you and for you, um, even if you don't feel comfortable voicing those prayer requests. So everybody that's on that team, thank you so much for uh, being part of our prayer team. So like I said, we're going to be in Mark 8 this morning, um, but back before Netflix, back before uh, the ability to just binge watch things, uh, when we had to watch shows um, week to week, uh, I was always, uh, the first show I got really hooked on was House, House MD. Um, Greg Laurie, where he was the jerk doctor who could figure out every problem. Um, and the thing that me and my friends, we used to watch that show, and the thing that we uh, always, it, it, we loved, but it frustrated us, was uh, the season finale. The season finale of House, if you ever go back and watch it, it's on Netflix, you can go binge watch it, um, were just huge, epic, right? Season finales are the big, epic um, you know, trucks exploding, people, you know, held at gun. But, like, it's crazy, and, like, it's a medical show, and there's helicopters crashing into buildings for no reason. Um, but I love it, and it, like, leaves you with these cliffhangers, right? It leaves you wanting more, wanting to be excited all the way through the break of the show. And I always said, why can't every episode be like that? Be like, that? like clearly the writers can write it, so, like, write something that that's epic and that's big. Um, and then, you know, we got Netflix and, and movies and, like, but this idea of cliffhangers and, and having something that gets us excited um, and carries us through uh, has always really stuck out to me. Um, and really, this is what the Marvel Universe has captured, right? The entire universe is just one big cliffhanger. Every movie just gets you ready for the next one. Um, everything builds this big dramatic moment. And that's really what's happening in Mark here. For these first eight chapters of Mark, as we're going to get through this eighth, eighth chapter today, um, Mark has been building. He's been building to something. Everything that he has been saying, everything that we have seen in these first eight chapters has been to establish who Jesus is. And after today, after today's passage, starting next week, everything really changes. The tone and focus of the ministry of Jesus is going to change with next week's sermon. There's your cliffhanger. So today gets us right up to that point. The first half has all been about establishing who Jesus is. 
And for Jesus himself, this first half has been, has been about teaching and showing the disciples, showing that same reality to the disciples about who he is. And yet we've seen time and time again the disciples just miss the point. And today, once again, through a series of events, we have a couple of different interactions Jesus is going to have. The disciples are given a front row view to Jesus, to who he is, to who he is clearly showing himself to be, the Son of God and Messiah. And they are left with the realization that they have no idea what's going on. They are left with the realization, and we are left with the realization, that our growth, our understanding, our spiritual maturity only can happen as we stay connected to Jesus, as we, through Jesus' grace, can we grow, can we mature. It was the same for the disciples, and it's the same for us today. So that's where we're going to go. I'm going to pray, and then let's jump in. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. God, thank you for getting us here, uh, even with the snow and the cold, Lord. And God, for those who um, are affected by this, Lord, those who are um, this is, is more than an inconvenience. This is life-threatening weather, um, life-threatening issues. Lord, we pray for your protection and, and comfort for them. Lord, we pray for those um, who are just um, stuck by the snow, God, that you would uh, move in their lives. Lord, um, God, we gather together today to celebrate and rejoice and be equipped and be challenged. Lord, you've called us to be lights in this world, and we can only do that through your grace and your presence. And so, Lord, we come here this morning seeking you, expecting to hear from you. So, Lord, we ask that you reveal yourself to us this morning. God, we, it's, we don't have to look far to see the brokenness of this world, to see the pain and the hurt. Lord, we look um, and we lift up our brothers and sisters and just fellow humans in Aurora as that community deals um, with the, the casualties and the pain of the shooting that happened there. Lord, we look around, um, really around the country and even around the world at the um, pain and hurt that is happening through um, just pride and arrogance. And um, Lord, we just see over and over again that this world is marred by sin, broken by sin. And so, Lord, we ask that you move in this place. And as you call us to be lights of the world, help us to take that seriously, to step into that role, to reflect you to the world, to bring glory to you. Um, God, you have invited us in to be part of what you are doing to redeem all things back to yourself. Um, God, give us the boldness and the, uh, the quietness to hear from you and the boldness to step when you tell us to step. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you are doing. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so Mark 8, we'll read a, a section and then we'll go back and break it down. So Mark 8, starting in verse 1. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And the disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, to, he said that these should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the district of Delumanus. 
Delimenta. Sorry. So for some of you, as we've been walking through Mark, um, some of you are going to read that passage and say, I feel like we've done this before. I feel like we've been here. Just two chapters ago in Mark 6, a very similar event happens. Jesus feeds the 5,000. That number is actually probably a little bit bigger because it says 5,000 men. If you factor in women and kids, that number is probably bigger, but let's stick with 5,000 for now. And so now here, just two chapters later, we get Jesus feeding 4,000 people. Now these two events are similar in a lot of ways, but there are some slight differences, and I want to point out more of the differences. And we're not going to spend a ton of time breaking this passage down because this kind of sets up the rest of the scenes we're going to look at today. But looking at the differences, before even we jump into that, I don't want to minimize or lose sight of the reality that, once again, we have here Jesus doing something that nobody else can do. Jesus doing something that is above and beyond. Jesus doing something only God can do. Taking just seven loaves and a couple of fish and feeding 4,000 people to their fullness. It wasn't that they each took a bite. It was they were eight and were full, and there were seven baskets worth of food left over. That word for baskets, these are not just the kind of baskets that you carry on your side like we saw in the feeding of the 5,000. These are baskets that are big, like you could fit a small child into them. That's how much food is left over. Jesus does something that only he can do. He feeds, he nourishes, he takes care of, and he does it in a miraculous God kind of way. I don't want us to lose sight of that because this is God moving in a very real and intentional way here. But again, we see some differences between these two stories. So like I said, there's 4,000 here. In the original story, there was, in the other story, there was 5,000. Here we have seven loaves and a few fish. The other one, we had five loaves of bread and two fish. And when we're talking about the food, where did the food come from? In chapter 6, the disciples went into the crowd, and it was a young boy's lunch. A young boy had, it was his his lunch that they got the loaves and the fish from. This time, though, Jesus asked the disciples, how much food do you have? Jesus has the disciples be actively involved in what he is doing. He has them give from their food. He has them be actively involved in what he is doing, growing in their engagement of the situation. In the original account, in in chapter 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, it's more of Jesus kind of handling everything, directing traffic. Now, he lets the disciples kind of take on a little bit more responsibility. But engagement in the situation doesn't equal understanding or even spiritual maturity on its own. Right? The disciples are involved here, but we're going to see in just a a couple of verses that they don't quite understand what's happening. Spiritual maturity doesn't just happen by being around Jesus. You must intentionally, yes, observe and experience, ask questions, and respond to truly grow. So I want you to focus in on verse 2 for a second. We see that Jesus is once again moved by compassion. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. For three days, this crowd of people has been following Jesus, and nobody's left to go, for, go on a lunch break. Nobody's made a run to go get food. They've been hearing him talk. They've been hearing him teach. And it says he is moved by compassion. We talked about that word when we did the feeding of the 5,000. It's this gut-wrenching, deep-down-in-your-soul kind of feeling, kind of pity and warmth and love for these people that he wants to take care of them. And this word is only reserved for the way Jesus feels about others. He wants them to be not only spiritually nourished, which is what he's been doing for the last three days, but physically nourished. Food equals love. Saturday, we have a potluck. Saturday night, 6 o'clock, Monica already talked about it. 
we get together a couple times a year, and we bring food, and we eat, and we laugh, and we spend time together, and we pray together. I invite everybody, come be part of it. Even if you can't cook and you just want to come eat, cool, that's me. Join my table. If you can cook, we need food because potlucks don't work without food. But food is a way for us to connect and have a relationship. I love potluck and prayers. You guys should come on Saturday. People have traveled, it says here, from far away to be with him. And he doesn't want them to go home and go back home and faint on the way. Jesus cares about their well-being. Jesus cares about your well-being. He cares about your experience here. He cares about your life here and how you live it. It matters to God. We see in verse 4, the disciples ask a question. It says, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? The disciples ask a question that they probably should know the answer to. Because they've literally seen this scene play out already. They've seen this happen. Jesus fed the 5,000 in almost an identical way. Don't they remember? Better question, how could they forget? How could they forget what they have already seen Jesus do? They saw him teach. He says they're hungry. He wants to feed them. And they say, well, how in the world could somebody feed them out here in the middle of nowhere? Guys, he's already done this once. How many times have you seen God move in your life? How many times have you seen God move in the lives of people around you? How many times have you been able to say, praise the Lord because he answered a prayer? Because God stepped in and moved in this way. And then how many times have you come up with a situation, come up with a thought that said, this is hopeless. This is too big. Everything is too overwhelming. God can't possibly take care of this, or he won't. We routinely forget what God has pulled us from, what God has provided. Everybody take a big, deep breath in and let it out. That's a blessing right there. And other than times when public speakers tell you to do that, we don't think about that. But that's God giving us a blessing right there, moment by moment. It's easy to look at the disciples and say, how could they forget? How could they mess this up without considering our own lives and how we forget that God moves and steps in over and over again and over and over again? We lose sight and we forget. But even in them forgetting, even in them misunderstanding, Jesus is teaching them. Jesus continues to teach, continues to say, I'm not going to let this one go. I'm going to use this and show you guys what's going on. The last thing I want to draw your attention to in this, in the feeding of the 4,000 is the where and the who of this event. The first time Jesus feeds a large crowd, when he feeds the 5,000, it's in a mostly Jewish area, and it's mostly Jewish people. This time, as you guys have been with us the last couple weeks, Jesus took a trip. He took a trip across the sea. He's in a mostly Gentile area. He's in a place with away from mostly uh, God-believing people, people who are pagan, people who either have absolutely no idea anything that has to do with God, or if they have any idea of religious worship at all, it's pagan, it's usually some type of um, public, you know, personal sacrifice, it's sexual, it's immoral in every which way. Those are the people he's ministering to here. That's the kind of, that's the makeup of this crowd. It's going to be mostly Gentile people, mostly people he's not supposed to be interacting with, let alone sitting down to have a meal with. But Jesus sits 
and has a meal and feeds, takes care of these Gentile people, these people who are outside of the family of God. The bread of life here is feeding all people. The first time it was mostly Jewish people. Now it is open to everyone. God, Jesus is saying here, look, my feeding of all people, I am the bread of life and I am here for everybody. Jesus is feeding people who most Jewish communities would say, don't even go near that town. Don't even go near that place. Jesus here says, no, it's, this is welcome for everyone. And mostly you have a crowd of people following Jesus who are Jewish as well. So really what we have here on this hillside in this 4,000 is a mixture of Gentile people and probably some Jewish people as well sitting to have a meal together. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen outside of when Jesus is making it happen. And this is just a small shadow of what the church is going to be. Jesus is going to leave, and then the, the disciples have to look around and say, okay, how do we do this life now that he's gone? And most of the church, most of the New Testament, if you read it, it's Paul writing to churches saying, here's how to fix this, here's how to do this church thing. Because you have these non-religious or pagan background people with the Jewish people who have been doing things the same way for thousands of years, and now both of them got to come together and say, okay, we're doing something new now. And we've got to figure out how to make that happen. And that's most of what the New Testament is, de- is tackling. And this here is a small glimpse of this is what it's going to be like. People from all over are going to come together and be able to break bread together in peace. And so Jesus feeds the 4,000. They are full. And then it says immediately he gets into a boat and they leave. Pick it up in verse uh, 11. Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. The Pharisees we have seen have some interactions with Jesus. The Pharisees are the teachers of the law. They are the ones who make sure people are are living up to the law. Not only the law, but the pharisaical traditions that put a, a hedge, make it even a little tougher to follow the law. And so the Pharisees come and it says they want a sign. They want a sign basically to justify Jesus' ministry. They have heard and seen the miracles themselves, but they've already made up their minds about who Jesus is and where his power and authority comes from. We saw that way back in chapter 3. The Pharisees had declared that he has a, Jesus has an impure spirit, a demon in him, that he is working on behalf of Satan. That's what the Pharisees had decided about Jesus and his ministry. Regardless of what Jesus said or did, Nothing was going to change their mind. And you see that even in the wording, seeking a sign from, him, from heaven to test him. This is not a test like to confirm his authority or to discover merit about something. Rather, this is a test like we're going to put an obstacle in front of him. We want to give him a reason. We want to give a reason to discredit him. They aren't looking to grow or to learn or to have faith, but rather to confirm their already entrenched beliefs. They wanted a sign. Now, a sign is a different, different than a miracle. A sign is kind of like you get pulled over by a police officer. The police officer comes up to your window, and he asks for your license and registration. Right? He doesn't, he's not looking for the ability or proof that you can drive. You've already shown that you sort of can. What he wants is, do you have the authority to drive? Do you have the authority to operate this vehicle? 
See, they weren't asking Jesus for a miracle. They had seen him already do miracles. They want a sign. They want something. Jesus has done plenty of miracles. They wanted unmistakable proof of the divine authority that he claimed to have. Something akin to an Old Testament, you know, Elijah was able to call down fire from heaven. Or just having the voice of God speak. They wanted something that says, we know you have power. We want to know where the power is from. Give us a sign that shows us unmistakably that your power comes from God. Jesus rejects this request for a sign with a very deep sigh. He sighed deeply in his spirit. He groaned with dismay and despair. This is, I think, a little bit of the humanity of Jesus shining through here. Right? Much like a parent when you do something wrong. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Jesus is saddened. He is disappointed that this request is made. But why, why reject it? Because, I mean, really, isn't this another perfect opportunity to win over the haters? Isn't this another perfect opportunity of because a simple sign and the opposition from the Pharisees can finally be done? They can finally stop coming after him if he'll just give them a sign. So why not, Jesus? It's because their request for a sign wasn't about whether or not Jesus had power and authority. They already conceded that he did. Though they believed it was from Satan, they believed he had power and authority. The issue is that their request for a sign is about trustworthiness. They didn't trust Jesus. Basically, it's the prayer of, God, if you will do this thing, then I'll believe. Then I'll follow. God, if you will do this thing in my life, if you will answer this prayer request, then I'll believe. Then I'll live like a Christian. If you will only take care of this one thing. Who are we to put God on trial? Who are we to demand that God impress us or convince us of who he is? He has completely and fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus. He has given us his own word, living and active right here. He has, through generations, been gracious and patient, and we have continuously rejected and defamed and warred against him. They wanted a sign. The sign was standing right in front of them. The power and authority that Jesus had was on his own power and authority because he is God in the flesh. He didn't need to give them a sign. He himself is the sign. One of the commentaries I read said, Faith that depends on proof is not faith, but only veiled doubt. Faith, like love itself, cannot be proven. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. And so Jesus says, no, you're not getting a sign. And he leaves. He gets in the boat with his disciples and goes across the sea. And even this, even him walking away, this is a moment for the Pharisees. Because another commentary says that faith comes when one steps onto the boat with Jesus and does not prefer to remain in safety on the shore. The Pharisees had the chance right here to get on the boat with Jesus and go follow him. They have the chance. They've seen enough. They've heard enough but they are so entrenched in what they think is right that they just stay put and watch Jesus sail away. This interaction, though short, Jesus uses for a teaching point to do a little debriefing with the disciples in the next passage. Look at verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. 
he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus has this encounter with the Pharisees in front of the disciples, and he tells them, be careful of the Pharisees, but be careful of Herod and the Herodians. Leaven is used to uh, make dough rise in baking bread. And oftentimes in teaching, especially when it comes to the Bible, it's oftentimes equal, uh, equated to evil in metaphors like this. Because leaven, you just take a little bit, you put it in the bread. Actually, that's how oftentimes they would make bread back then. So you would make a loaf of bread, you'd keep a little bit, some crumbs, and you'd add that in as you were baking, and that would help make uh, the bread rise. And just a little bit can change everything. We make excuses and allow even just a little bit of leaven, just a little bit of that evil that he's talking about here in, and it ruins the whole thing. It changes everything, right? There's that phrase, of bad, one bad apple can't spoil the bunch. No, it can in this, world, in, this, in this situation. Jesus is not giving just a general warning that the Pharisees and Herod were to be avoided. Because the thing that unites the Pharisees and Herod, why drop Herod's name here? He's not anywhere near here. Herod's the leader in charge, and we've seen him referenced a couple of times. What unites the Pharisees, what unites Herod and his followers, is that neither side believes Jesus is the Messiah. Their opposition to Jesus is the result of their disbelief. And here now, Jesus is warning the disciples to avoid heading down the same path. The same path of not trusting in who Jesus is. See, these are serious realities that Jesus is addressing here. It's not just a, hey, be careful from them. This is a, hey, be careful, because if you're not careful, you guys might walk down the same path that they're walking down. Even his closest, even the 12, he says, look, based on what I've seen, based on interactions, based on what you guys have said to me and what I know about where you guys are at, be careful, because you could walk down the same path they're walking down. They're serious realities that Jesus is trying to help them understand, and instead, the disciples are discussing the food situation. Verse 16 says the disciples were discussing about the amount of bread they had for the trip. They'd only brought one loaf of bread for, the, for all of them. So there's a serious rock, paper, scissors tournament going on with who gets to eat. They start to have an argument about basically who forgot to bring bread, who forgot to bring food. And Jesus talking about leaven just reminded them and spurred on the conversation. They have completely missed what Jesus is saying here. Jesus mentions leaven and they try to He's trying to teach them, and they can't stop talking about bread. They're so focused on the lack of physical bread in them, they lose sight of the reality that the bread of life is sitting in the boat with them, that he is trying to feed them, that he is trying to nourish them. Once again, if anybody should understand, shouldn't it be these guys? Shouldn't they get it by now? 
and yet they don't. They don't realize their actual condition. They don't, act, they don't realize how serious of a situation they find themselves in. The lack of trust and understanding, both of which Jesus is going to address. Their ongoing debate about bread is exactly why Jesus issues the warning in the first place. Because they still don't understand. Their hearts and minds are not focused on where they should be. And so we see Jesus in verse 17 ask a series of, 17 and following, he asks a series of questions, some rhetorical, some he actually is looking for some, uh, an answer to. He speaks to them with the same kind of language and intensity as the Old Testament prophets would speak to Israel as they would repeatedly fall away from God. Jeremiah 5.21, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Ezekiel 12, You dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. They're talking about food. Jesus says, pay attention. Do you understand what we're talking? Do you understand what we're doing here? Are you comprehending what you're experiencing? Guys, how is it that you have seen the things you have seen, you have heard the things you have heard, and yet we sit on this boat, I'm trying to teach you something, I'm trying to warn you, and you're concerned about how much bread you have. Jesus proceeds to ask them a few questions to help walk them through. He says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk you through this. He reminds them that they have seen him feed at least 9,000 people with a few pieces of bread and a few fish. And there were excessive amounts left over. He reminds them, look what I have already done. Why would you think I wouldn't or couldn't do it again on this boat right now? Why would you think that I would let you go hungry, that I won't take care of you? You have seen me take care of people over and over again. See, the disciples still didn't live like they were in the presence of God. Like they were in a relationship, like they were in close proximity to him. So he says, remember. If you read through the Old Testament, God telling the Israelites to remember is over and over again. That's, that's really a big main theme of the Old Testament is, remember what I've already done. Remember how I have been faithful. You continuously walk away. And God says, come back. Just remember who I am. Remember what I have done for you. Remember and come back. Remember what God has already done and how he has been faithful and is faithful. See, being a Christian doesn't mean that we just turn our brains off to the world around us. It doesn't mean that we ignore everything and instead we just live by this blind faith, this weird spirituality. No, there's, there's tangible reality. We use our minds. We use our brains. Because see, it's not their faith that Jesus is questioning. It's their seeing and understanding. Do you have eyes and you still don't see? Do you have ears and you don't hear? Do you still not understand, which is leading them to not trust him? Because faith without an understanding, you can still not trust Jesus. Christianity involves your mind, involves your brain, involves remembering what God has done. Observing what God is doing now. It's being able to step away from being so preoccupied with your own set of, this is how the world works, perceptions. And instead, coming to scripture, coming on a Sunday, expecting to hear from God, expecting to be moved and challenged and equipped and encouraged and rebuked. 
It's earnestly, actively seeking God and allowing him to speak to you. And when he does, being open to responding and changing. It's us being able to step away from being so preoccupied with the right here, the right now. This right in front of me is the most important thing going on. This bill, this relationship, this work situation is the most important thing going on and nothing else matters. And this is the thing I'm going to worry about. Jesus speaks to this way of thinking in Matthew 6. And I, don't want to, I didn't put it on the screen. I just want you to hear his words. Some of you have heard this many times, and we need to come back to it many times. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the, gra the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But first, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you have the ability, can you slow down and say, I have all of these things going on, all of these stressors, relationships and bills and family and politics and work and all of these things, can you slow down and honestly and actively trust that God can and will provide in the midst of all of those things? Trust that he knows best and then live accordingly. Live like you actually trust him, which mostly means obey. So it looks like, God, I trust that you're going to provide for me financially. That doesn't mean that I don't work. It doesn't mean that I'm just expecting to trip over a bag of money on the sidewalk. It means I work and I budget and I steward the things God has given me. But it also means I'm going to rest. It means I'm not going to work myself into the ground. I'm going to take a break and rest because, God, you commanded me to take a break. And I trust you. I trust that I can rest. I can take days off. I can take sabbaticals. And you're going to provide and you're going to take care of me. That's living like you actually trust and believe in the things you say. See, all of this comes back to our connection to Jesus and our belief in him and our relationship with him. Because the only way, as I said at the top, the only way we're going to grow in our faith, in our understanding, is through and by the work of Jesus. He's the one who calls us to himself. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who grows and matures us. That's what the disciples needed to learn. It's what we need to learn and relearn and continue to learn. It's a process Jesus is taking us through, and he graciously does that. Even by asking hard questions, Jesus is still taking his disciples by the hand and showing them, look, this is what I'm trying to teach you. And he continues to teach. We've got one more scene I want us to look at. Look at verse 22. 
And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. It says, People bring a blind man to Jesus for healing. Do you bring other people who are blind to Jesus to Jesus? Do you have those conversations? Do you lead your friends and family and coworkers to Jesus? Jesus takes this blind man and says he gets him out of the village. We don't know why he gets out of the village. We do know in Bethsaida he's already been there and they've already rejected him. Maybe it has something to do with that. But Jesus takes him out. Jesus literally takes him by the hand and leads this man into healing and safety and a new life. So Jesus rubs some spit into the man's eyes. Practically speaking, his eyes are probably pretty crusted up from just ooze and goo and just like naturally life. Again, this is a tactile connection with the man. We saw this happen last week when Jesus heals the deaf mute, right? He put his fingers in his ears and um, touches his tongue. Again, Jesus is connecting with this blind man. And so he spits and rubs it into the guy's eyes. And he lays his hands on the man and asks him, do you see anything? The man looks and he says he sees people, but they're walking like trees, which indicates to us this guy wasn't blind from birth, right? He knows what a tree looks like. He knows what people walking, what people look like. So some point in his life, his sight was taken from him. Now, a big thing that might jump out at you is that this is a little different than Jesus' usual miracles, right? Usually, someone is completely, instantly restored. Jesus lays hands, boom, done. You have sight. So is this the the thing that Jesus can't do? He can do everything else, but he can't make a blind man see? Is this the one thing Jesus doesn't have in his bag of abilities? No. We have seen Jesus over and over, just verses ago, feed 4,000 people with a couple of loaves and fish. Jesus commands the winds and the waves to obey him. Jesus does and whatever he wants. Jesus is in control of all things. So what's he doing here? This is intentional. This is Jesus teaching. This is Jesus being intentional here. The master teacher is at work. He is taking the opportunity to teach and show his disciples something. When Jesus first called the disciples, they were spiritually blind. They had no idea who Jesus was. They didn't know he was God. They didn't know he was the Messiah. As time goes on, they they listen and they watch. And they begin to understand little by little. Do you see anything? Do you yet understand? I think at this point, the disciples say, kind of. It's a little blurry. I know there's something going on, but can't quite make it out completely. There's something about Jesus, and they know he has power and authority. They know he does things that no one else can do, but they can't quite put the pieces together. The more in interaction with Jesus, the more connected to Jesus they are, the more they begin to see, the more they will see. What comes in this next section, as I said earlier, next week's sermon 
the climax of the first half of Mark is that Peter is going to declare who he believes Jesus is. The Messiah. Still kind of blurry, but I can make out that you are the one we've been waiting for, Jesus. You are the one who's going to go to war with Satan on our behalf. You are the one who's going to restore and redeem what has been broken. You are the one that we've been waiting for. What's the point of the book of Mark? What's the goal of Mark's gospel? We've talked about it a few times. It states right at the top in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's gospel is to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and he is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah that the promise of God fulfilled. He is the one to defeat Satan. He is the one to redeem what has been broken by sin and offer grace and forgiveness and new life and new hope and new identity. But he is also God in the flesh. He is not just a good guy. He is not a man who earned the role of Savior by being good. He is God in the flesh. God himself enters into his creation to restore order and give life. And Jesus does that by dying on the cross in our place for our sins. So that anyone who would have faith in Christ, who would confess Jesus as Lord, would have new life. They would be saved from the wrath of God, from the wrath of God on sin, saved from hell, and saved to be a blessing to others now. See, the disciples are in process. We are in process. We hold these guys up. We hold the disciples. We hold the people of the Bible up and say, wow, I don't have faith like them. I couldn't do the things they do. But they are regular people who miss the point over and over and over again. The disciples are in process. They are not perfect. They are not even fully aware or understand what's going on around them. But over time, they begin to learn. We see at the end of Mark's gospel in the book of Acts, they finally start to see clearly. Finally, the blurriness has gone away, and they see Jesus for who he is. But it's still going to take some time. And it's not because they got smarter. It's not because they got holier. It's because they stayed connected to Jesus. It's because of Jesus' work in them that they go from having no sight to things get a little blurry to later on they fully see Jesus for who he is. Even this blind man that Jesus just healed, we have no indication of his faith, no indication of his behavior or ability. His healing comes solely from the repeated touch of Jesus, from being in connection, in relationship with Jesus. Your spiritual maturity, your Growth is about Jesus going to Jesus over and over and over again. Your growth is only going to come from you being connected, you finding your way to Jesus and letting him change and mature and grow you. That's what he does. He is the one who started all of this. He is the one who will continue it. He is the one who completes it. It's through the presence and intervention of God himself who grows you and shapes you and matures you. And he will do it for everyone. He offers it to everyone. That's what we saw and he feeds the 4,000. He offers this new life, this shaping, this maturing, this new identity to all people. New life, new sight is offered to you today. You will find it only in and through Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you. God, we thank you for sending Jesus to be, um, to be our Savior, to be the one who goes to 
war with Satan on our behalf, the one who takes on the penalty for our sin, the one who shows us how to live life in such a way that glorifies you, that is connected to you, that honors you. We thank you that Jesus continues to be our advocate even now. God, we thank you for the cross, for the messiness, for the brokenness, for the ugliness of what happened on that Friday and the powerful joyfulness that comes with the empty tomb. God, I pray if anyone here doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with you, that they would confess their sins, they would confess that Jesus is Lord, that they would run to you, Lord. And even those of us with relationships with you, Lord, those of us who have been Christians, who are Christians, Lord, that we would continuously find our way back to you, that we would keep ourselves in proximity to you. Lord, we know that we are a work in progress, that we are definitely not where... We are definitely not perfect. But God, we know that you have a work in store for us, that you are doing something in our lives, that you are growing us, that you are shaping us, that you are calling us to yourself. And Lord, we know that any growth, any understanding, any, anything new that's coming, Lord, is only coming from you and through you. And so God, we pray that you would keep us grounded and connected to you focused on you, that we would continuously find our way to you, seek after you and your kingdom first, that we would live as if we actually trust and believe you, that we would live if we actually, as if we actually believe and trust in what your word has to say to us. God, it's hard and it's messy, and so we ask that you would continue to empower us to do that. Continue to empower us to be the lights in the world that you have called us to be, to shine and point people towards your grace, your love, your mercy, your justice, your righteousness. God, we thank you and we praise you. Amen. We're going to continue.